coming. I'm excited. I'm so excited. Uh, yeah, September 2nd. So, uh, But you know, the Lord has taken this church and truly made it our family. And uh, we and my wife uh, absolutely love you guys with all of our hearts. We're so blessed by you. We've learned from you. Uh, words fail me. And so I'll be quiet. Uh, but you know what? Beyond that, there is somebody uh, and something infinitely greater, and that's Jesus Christ, that he loves you. And uh, man, take joy in that tonight, that uh, uh, your creator, uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, loves you tonight. Remember, always remember, there's nothing you can do that will make, you, make him love you less than he does right this moment. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. He loves you completely and absolutely. The fullness of his love. Uh, poured out into our lives. So uh, tonight we're going to be looking at a section of scripture from the book of Acts. So if you turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, we'll take this scripture tonight. Acts chapter 16. We'll be looking at two verses in particular, verses 25 and 26. And we'll read 25 and 26. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Let's go before the throne. God, we come before you. And Lord, we ask your presence to be here in a mighty way this evening. Lord, here we are. We've come not to hear from men. We've come not here by uh, uh, act or ritual or tradition, but Lord, we've come to seek You. You who died on the cross. You who paid our price. You whose precious blood was shed in our place. We come to seek You. We come to worship at Your feet. We come to worship Your Word tonight. And so Lord, we open our hearts to what Your Holy Spirit might say to us this evening. God, we want to leave here different. We want to leave here more like You. God, we, as we come into contact with Your Spirit tonight, may we be more like You. May we want more of You. So Lord, by Your Spirit, just drench this place tonight. We love You so much, Jesus, but Jesus, we want to love You more. And so Lord, make Your Word clear. Make it applicable to our lives. Thank You, Jesus. We love You with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Um, something interesting is uh, I study for the Old Testament survey class that takes place on Sunday nights. I, I find myself in an interesting place because as I come to a book, a book that we're going to go through uh, that particular night, uh, I, it happens and it becomes my favorite book. And, uh, you know, uh, then next week, the next book, oh, this is my favorite book. And I'm sure you guys are familiar with that if you've been reading through the Bible in a year. And as you go through the scripture, you think, oh man, this is juice. It's amazing. Oh, this is, where, this is where it's at right here. Here's my favorite book of the Bible. And then you hit the next book and you're like, oh, wow, this is the gold, you know, kind of a thing. And so I find myself, you know, uh, studying for uh, going through the Psalms and taking a survey of it. And man, I was just overwhelmed by that book. I've read it before, but in a special way, it's just impacted me. And in particular, what's impacted me about the book of Psalms is the aspect of praise. The aspect of praise. 
And maybe you think, well, yeah, Josh, obviously the book of Psalms is about praise, uh, you know, but it's amazing when you read and as you look uh, uh, at, at chapter to chapter about how the Israelites were supposed to be a people of praise. They were supposed to be identified by that praise. It's interesting because even the section and how they split it up, the book of Psalms is split up into five sections. It's, uh, uh, each section corresponds with one of the first five books of the Bible. But at the end of each section is a doxology of praise. It's, uh, 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 just, it's like an overwhelming sense where the psalmist says, all this, yes, but we praise you, God. And at the end uh, of the book of Psalms, it's just six chapters of praise, 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 praise and worship. And one of the things that's interesting is you find that the people weren't just to praise as they came to the temple. Uh, where uh, the Levites would lead them in worship and, 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 and in a congregational setting, much like we have here tonight. But that they were supposed to praise on the way to the temple. That they were supposed to praise when they wake up in the morning. That they're supposed to praise on their job. That they're supposed to praise with their family. They're supposed to praise before they go to bed. If something wakes them up in the middle of the night, they're supposed to praise. In every situation, they were to be a people of praise, constantly praising God. And that is just amazing to me. Because I think it's so necessary, and God saw it necessary, to separate and to make that distinguishing mark upon the nation of Israel in that land. So the other nations, uh, uh, would, they would be separate from all the other nations of that land. And that this distinguishing mark of praise would be a characteristic uh, set apart for Israel, for God's people, to identify them, uh, and for them to be identified to those around him, that they were separate, that they were different, that they did serve a true and a living God, not a God who they could just bring something, some false idol, but somebody they could worship at every minute of every day, of every hour, of every month, of every year. And so they were to be a people just enraptured with the theme of praise. And so that theme of praise has kind of caught my heart this evening. Now, Britt has been talking about victory and the victorious Christian life in the book of Joshua, incredible studies. We've seen victory after victory. We've seen defeat, but how God will turn the place of defeat into a place of victory. And I think about this theme of praise and the theme of victory, and I think they go hand in hand. And truly, there's many texts in the Bible where uh, that theme of the victory of praise is evident. Uh, In fact, one of the texts that uh, is spoken behind this pulpit often is uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Where Jehoshaphat, uh, 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 the king of Israel, had to face off against Moab and Ammon. And so uh, here's this, these two nations and they're rising against the children of Israel. They go before the Lord, outnumbered, and the Lord gives them a battle plan. And so whereas at one time, you know, uh, Israel would take up its shield and its sword, its bow, its spear, its arrow, its buckler, its shield. This time, uh, God said, take up your stringed instruments. Get the altos and the tenors and put them in front of the group and worship me. And so as the people praised the Lord in front of this army, uh, the Lord turned the army against each other and there was a great uh, victory wrought. But I think uh, for us and uh, where my heart's drawn is in Acts chapter 16 because I think we see a tremendous victory of praise that would uh, uh, start a tremor through Europe and that would eventually uh, travel throughout the known world, taking that which was right side up and turning it upside down but to the glory of God. And so we uh, look at these scriptures 
25 and 26. Now, Paul and Silas were maybe familiar with this story. We may be uh, well aware of this story. We know Paul and Silas, okay, they uh, were preaching, I think, and they got beaten with rods for, uh, you know, preaching the gospel. They're thrown into jail. They sing praises in the night, and the Lord sends an earthquake and delivers them, and uh, he does a great work. He does a great work. But let's look at what led up to this. What led up to these verses in this incarceration? Early or late in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, and then the beginning of chapter 16, we get the background to the story. Paul and Barnabas uh, are going to start their second missionary journey. They're going to go on another missionary journey. Uh, but there was a, a contention between them. Uh, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Paul didn't want to take John Mark. John Mark had abandoned them in the first missionary journey. And so Paul said, no, he's weak. What if he abandons us again? But Paul, the son of encouragement, or uh, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, said, no, he needs a second chance. And it was a contention, and uh, they had to go their separate ways. And so Barnabas took John Mark, and uh, Saul, or Paul, took Silas with him, and they set off on their journey. They begin their journey, and they begin to encourage the churches that they had planted on the first missionary journey. So they're going, hey, how's everything doing? Is everything healthy? Is everything okay? They're encouraging the brethren there. And uh, then they head uh, into uh, uh, the area uh, of Asia. And they're about to go into Asia to this uncharted land, uh, a place that they thought was ripe for the gospel. On the way, they uh, hear about a young man named Timothy. So they pick him up in Lystra. And uh, so here they are, they're going to go preach the word in Asia, but the Holy Spirit, interestingly enough, forbids them to go into Asia. So they think, okay, maybe this isn't the way into Asia. So they go uh, around uh, to Bithynia, uh, and uh, the Holy Spirit forbids them again. Don't go into there, don't go into there. Then Paul has a vision uh, uh, from a man, a man from Macedonia, who stood pleading with them to come to Macedonia. And it's interesting because at the end of verse 10, uh, if you look in chapter 16, it says, So immediately they left for Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so here they're trying to go east. God is saying, go west. And uh, in God's sovereign grace, God led Paul west into Europe, not east into Asia. And so by the direction, by the leading, without a doubt, Paul knew, okay, we're not called to go here, but we're called to go to this place. This place of Macedonia is where we'll start things off. So they make their way to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia you see in verse 12. And so uh, Paul wasn't content to go to the, the boroughs or the suburbs uh, of Macedonia. He wanted to go to that foremost city. He wanted to go to that location. Uh, he wanted to get right into the thick of it. And so he goes into that uh, city. Uh, Philippi was, in a sense, a Rome away from Rome. It was a frontier colony, uh, but uh, magistrates were appointed from Rome to rule in that city. People from Rome... Uh, uh, who retired, were sent to go there. And so uh, it was a strategic thing so that they would have loyal colonies on the fringes of the Roman Empire. And so it was all about strategy, but Roman rule reigned supreme there. And so as they walked into the city of Philippi, they spent the first couple of days just kind of taking stock, secret searching the Lord, or uh, uh, seeking the Lord as to what he might have them do. And uh, no one took note of them. No one took note of them except for one person and that person is the enemy the enemy of our souls oh surely he took note of this apostle and his companions surely as paul stepped foot he knew what that meant 
Here was this man, powerful in the gospel, and now he came into their land. And surely even then, from those first steps into that city, the banner that had long hung over Philippi, the banner that the enemy was in control, that this was his city, that he was the uh, ruler of this town, that he was the, uh, uh, the chief one, the one in charge. Surely as Paul stepped into that land, without even a word, that banner started to come down because the banner uh, would be held up over that city, the banner of Jesus Christ. His souls would begin to be saved as revival would come to that place. And so uh, someone took note of him, and it was the enemy, and the enemy had his attack ready for him. Now on the Sabbath, uh, as was customary with Paul, he tried to find the synagogue. And so he'd go and he'd look for the Jewish congregation and he would start there. Uh, but this uh, city had no uh, synagogue uh, and that means it was probably a, uh, not a big Jewish population. It only took 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue. And so uh, he goes and, and he finds uh, if there wasn't a synagogue, then the Jewish people, as was customary, would meet by a river. And so it says uh, there that if they, w- they went outside the city of Philippi and they found women gathered to pray. And so they found this group of women there gathered by the river to pray. Now they'd be by the river because it was important to them to be in a place where they could wash themselves in a ritual type of cleansing before they prayed, before they worshipped, before they came before uh, God in that way. And so it gives some uh, meaning to Psalm 137.1 that says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And here uh, the exiles uh, in Babylon, uh, having no synagogue or place to worship, they would go to the river of Babylon. They'd remember Zion, Jerusalem, and, uh, and they would uh, praise the Lord, or as we see there, weep. Now Paul goes and he has a conversation. It says that he spoke with Lydia, this, this woman who was there. And uh, that word there means a private conversation. And so he converses with her and she ends up getting saved. And not only does she end up getting saved, but her whole household gets saved. Not only do they get saved, but they want to get baptized. They're taught and instructed. And one of the awesome things is, is that this woman named Lydia uh, is from a place called Thyatira, which is in Asia. And Paul couldn't go to Asia to minister, so God brought someone, to, uh, someone from Asia to him. And uh, she was the first recorded convert of Paul on the second missionary journey. And she would be a pillar in this church, uh, Lydia, uh, as uh, you know, she was well off, well to do. She took them in, she housed them, and she would play an important role at the beginning of this church. But as I said, someone took note of these men. The enemy wasn't going to just give the city over. And so we see in verse 16, notice with me. It says, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. So this young girl, uh, demonized, uh, brought her masters uh, uh, fortune. They, they made money off of her, off of her so-called gift. The girl followed Paul and us and interestingly she cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So you have this interesting situation. And, uh, you know, the devil has two main tactics, doesn't it? First, he'll try to align with us. And he'll try to align with the church. 
say, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. It, it, let's just partner on this. There doesn't have to be spilt blood over this. And if that doesn't work, then he comes against us in a full frontal assault, as we'll see in persecution. But here is this girl, and interestingly enough, she is saying, these guys speak the way of salvation. These guys serve the Most High God. It almost, I mean, she's telling the truth. And here's this demonized girl following them around doing this, but it begins to grate on Paul. It says that he's sore, vexed in his spirit. He's grieved in his heart over what's going on. And so he turns and he casts the demon out of her. It's interesting because, uh, you know, well, what's going on here? Why is she speaking the truth? You know, uh, why is this happening? And why did Paul, you know, get rid of her? You guys have to understand, God will not have the testimony of truth spoken by those who are not true. For behind the method is a motive. And the motive is not that of helpfulness, but that of destruction. God will not have somebody speak the truth who is not true. You guys, here's the danger that was before them. If this woman went unchallenged by Paul, if this young girl went unchallenged and he... Uh, as she spoke the truth. Yes, it was true. And you couldn't challenge the truth of what she was saying. But Paul challenged the truth of who she was. Why? Because if she could establish credibility with the citizens of Philippi, that yes, okay, maybe she's part of this group, maybe she's speaking, that she could take and she could twist after that point, after she had won their hearts, after she had won their trust, she could take and the enemy could take and twist that truth into an air that would lead to destruction. And so it was such a dangerous time. In fact, G. Campbell Morgan commenting on this, he said, the hour of greatest peril for the gospel in Philippi was not the hour when they put Paul in prison. It was the hour when the damsel with the spirit of divination told the truth. It's when she told the truth. And the enemy will try to partner and he'll try to come with some form of truth. But he isn't true. And remember that God will not have the testimony of truth spoken by those who are not true. Who are not true. So, what happens after this? In verse 19, we see the reaction. It says, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And so here, these guys, these uh, uh, guys lose their source of income. They lose their jobs. And they rise up. There's no concern over the girl. There's no concern for her welfare that she's been delivered, that she's been set free that she's not enslaved to this uh, 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 demon any longer. But they look and they say, we've lost our prophet. And so they grab them and it says they drag them into the center of the city there. And the center of the city is where they conduct all kinds of business, where, they do the, uh, where the magistrates would rule and judge and decide uh, on different situations and different cases. But as the mob rose up against uh, uh, them, it says that the magistrates... Uh, you know, they listened to the people. Uh, no longer was there any concern or, or no, they didn't voice that, oh, it's because we lost money. Oh, it's because uh, we're out of work. Or, oh, it's because, you know, now we have no income. But they made up these accusations saying, these men are Jews and wherever they go, they create disturbances. They rile people up. They just 
make people crazy. And not only that, but they're teaching something that we can't believe and that's unlawful for us to believe. So the people all, you know, rise up, caught up in the situation. The magistrates have their clothes stripped off their backs. There are men, uh, assistants to the magistrates called lictors, and they would carry rods on their back, much in the same way a police officer would carry a gun on his hip. And they took those rods off and they began to beat these men. And in verse 20 it says, And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And so after they'd been beaten mercilessly, just brutally, and uh, a lot of the time they would do this uh, to get evidence for the trial. They'd get a confession through the beating that they would use as evidence in the trial. And so these men had nothing to uh, confess. And so the brutality of the beating, they'd beat the back with these rods, the bruises and the blood uh, just dripping and caked. And not only that, but then they were taken into the inner prison. They were taken down into the depths of the dungeon, the worst place, uh, dank and dark, just, just horrible. And with their open back, uh, you know, the sores on their back, bleeding, hardly able to move, uh, he then even took it one step further. He fastened their feet in stocks, which was a form of torture uh, at times. And, and the, the feet would be held in such a way where you could never get comfortable. And some of the times the feet would be held up off the ground so that you'd have to lay on your back. Uh, and so you would lay on those fresh wounds, uh, receiving even less comfort. And so it was said of them, that uh, wherever they went, they were creating disturbances. Why did people react? Why did they react in such a way? In John three, it says, "This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed." And so uh, there, Jesus is saying, he's saying. Uh, you know what, as we go in and as Paul and Silas are these incredible lights wherever they go, uncompromising in their witness, uncompromising in the gospel, uncompromising in their character, wherever they went, they were a tremendous light. And so people loved them when the gospel was delivered, when they were set free from the power of darkness and bondage to that darkness, where their sins were forgiven, where they met their Savior face to face, their sins washed as far as the east is from the west. The people would raise up and love Paul and Silas and his companions for the light that they brought into their lives. But in just on the flip side of the coin, people hated Paul because he exposed their deeds and people don't love uh, the light uh, whose deeds are evil. And so this group of people bugged by this. It wasn't Christianity at that time wasn't just segmented to this kind of this, this, this little thing. You guys go over here and do your thing. Christianity was uh, spreading like wildfire. And it was, a, it was to revolutionize the world at that time. And it was changing things, and it was changing people, it was changing uh, worship, it was changing, it was changing the world. In fact, we see in just one chapter later, in chapter 17, verse 6, it says, uh, uh, as Paul and his companions are, are, are somewhere else, he says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, and this was the, uh, the world's commentary on the Christians of that time, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Oh! These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Have come here too. And guys, Jesus, just make that so of us tonight. Let us change this world upside down or right side up, however you want to put it. Things need to shake. 
things need to shake a bit. You guys have to understand, not all disturbances are bad. And just in the sense that they were creating disturbances wasn't a bad thing. A smoke alarm creates a crazy disturbance, doesn't it? It can be annoying, it can be grating. And you know, the uh, firefighters went through and they, there was some article saying that over 50% of the smoke alarms have the batteries taken out of them. Why? Because the battery starts to die, it goes off, and then we think, oh, I'm not going to go through this, and who knows, it goes off at weird occasions, it's too sensitive when I cook eggs on the stove and they start to burn, I've got to wave the towel in front of it, and it's this huge process, and it's better just to remove it. But man, when the smoke is billowing into the house, when the kids, you hear them coughing, when something's stinging your eyes and the flames start to lick the wall of the house, man, and that alarm beats through that smoke and your heart quickens as you wake up, you know what's happening. You know what's happening. And so you and your family can be saved as you get out of that place of destruction. And so too the church should be like that alarm. Oh man, man, the smoke is billowing, the flames are licking. And so the church needs to sound that sound of alarm and say, escape, escape, escape. And so some disturbances are good. It's not bad to make someone feel uncomfortable for walking away if they're telling you a dirty joke because you don't want the Holy Spirit who's pure inside you to take part in it. It's not a bad thing to uh, uh, stop somebody from gossiping and making them feel uncomfortable because, you're, uh, because that's sin. You see, some disturbances aren't bad things. You know, we want our doctors to tell us the truth, don't we? How would it be if we had a, a doctor who just candy-coated everything? Doc, how am I doing? I'm not, I'm not feeling too good. Oh, you're great. You've never been healthier. You're, you're phenomenal. But, you know, let me just say that if, if you should probably fill out that will and testament in the next three weeks. But you're doing great. We don't want that. We want the truth. We want the truth. And we, we need to speak the truth and we need to speak the truth in love. In love. And I find that when I love people, I want to tell them the truth. I find that if I, I say I love somebody and <laughs> I'm ashamed of the gospel, I have to check my heart before the heart of God because I don't know if I truly love them. I think I love my comfort more. So God called Paul and everywhere they went they created disturbances and as we'll see this disturbance was used for God's glory notice the songs in the night and so we see in verse 25 and 26 as we look at this scene of these guys who've just been put through this this gnarliness at first we're amazed by the cheerfulness and the, uh, the heroic aspect of these men when we see their singing uh, but then we see that their singing wasn't abnormal, but it was normal. It wasn't the result of fluctuating emotions. It was the expression of a constant experience of the soul. You guys have to understand that as they went into here, they didn't team up and say, oh, you know, what should we do? This was just natural. This was every day. This wasn't a unique situation in their lives. This was the everyday life for them. This was the constant expression of their soul to God. So here these men are who have been beaten with rods, backs bloody and bruised, put into the inner prison, and whose feet are put into the stocks. The crazy thing is that they weren't, dis, uh, they weren't uh, put in there uh, because of some disobedience they had done. But they were doing God's work, preaching the gospel. They were doing the right thing. Here they are, serving the Lord, uncompromising, unashamed. 
wanting to see this little girl delivered. And here for doing the right thing, this is what happens to them. This is what happens to them. And I want you guys to take yourselves right now and take yourselves 2,000 years back. And put yourself into that uh, uh, situation. And so here you are, you're evangelizing on the streets of Philippi, you're handing out your four spiritual laws or whatever you're doing, and uh, they grab you, and you can't do that, and they drag you, and they tear your shirt off, and they begin to beat you mercilessly with rods until you can hardly move. And on top of that, then they carry you, and they drag you down to the inner prison. They throw you on this dank floor, rats crawling around, mildew climbing up the wall, uh, you know, just the odor just in the stench from all the waste uh, of the other prisoners falling to that place. And then they put you on your back, they put your feet in stocks, and you think, okay, what would my response be? What would my reaction be to this? You take yourself and you put yourself back and you take yourself back to that point. What would our reaction be? Now truly, truly there is a pain that we bring upon ourselves at times that we have to be responsible for. And sometimes we do it because of our foolishness. I remember being in junior high. And I remember uh, as I was in junior high, there was this, uh, this guy and, and he, you know, he was a little crazy, but we all are in junior high. And he, he was looking for attention and different kinds of things, but he told me one Sunday, he said, I really want to have a broken arm. You know, I, I, I've never broken anything. I don't have a broken arm because I want a cast and, and I want people to sign my cast. And I think somebody else had just had a cast and, and, and he thought that was great. And I kid you not, the very next Sunday, he comes in with a cast. He had broken his arm. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this guy, whatever he sets out to do, he does it. But then I got the rest of the whole story. He said, well... I took my bike and I rode it as fast as I could into a telephone pole. And he broke his arm. Absolutely amazing. I couldn't believe it. The sad thing, and we can be so cruel in junior high, is nobody signed his cast. <laughs> but I mean, I signed it real big and Psalm 119 on there and, you know, took it up. And... But it's interesting because there is a pain that we can bring on ourselves that we have to be responsible for. That the, the, the foolish things we do. But there is a pain that comes from life. There is a pain that comes no matter where we are in this earth as we follow God. Wherever we are, we truly follow God with all of our hearts. We pay a price for it. We pay a price for it. Some more than others, some in different ways. But there's pain that happens to us and that comes into our lives because life is just that way or because there's evil people in the world because they take advantage and they do this and they do that thing and so pain comes into our lives in a variety of ways that we uh, had uh, that we didn't call upon ourselves for I look at this room and I can only imagine the testimonies in this room of the pain that's been endured and it's a very real thing in our lives and it's a very real thing uh, to the apostles they felt this thing they felt that and here, theirs was physical pain. And sometimes it's physical pain with us. But sometimes it's, it's emotional pain. It's these different uh, avenues of pain. It's these different avenues of difficulty and circumstances. And so you take yourself back and you put yourself in that situation and you say, what would be my response? And I ask you this question tonight. And I don't ask you this to, eh, 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 because I ask it of myself. If I put myself in that story, would the story be the same? If I put myself in that story, would it be the same story? Because I think my response would be, I'd curl up in a ball and suck my thumb. Oh. And pain can be gnarly, can't it? 
and how we deal with pain in, in the different ways. How sometimes it just is that perspective, uh, like the apostles have, that gets us through. I remember uh, when I was first married, uh, I was so excited to wear my wedding ring. And uh, I, I, I was an electrician by trade. And uh, in construction, you're not supposed to wear your rings, but our boss, since we just got married, uh, it was, was giving us some slack. But I ended up catching it on something and ripping my finger off. And, uh, and, and, and so <laughs> I have a fear of rings now. <laughs> uh, but, um, but it was amazing because, uh, you know, they put it back on. And uh, they did five surgeries and everything. And, and it was so rad, I got to go to this awesome hospital where they pioneered microsurgery. And, and, and how they got the grant was, was amazing. They took uh, these two rabbits in, in their garage and uh, they cut the ears off of the rabbits and moved them and switched them, sewed them up, and they worked. And so they got this grant to start this uh, hospital uh, uh, pioneering this microsurgery. And so I was in there one day, and it was my fourth surgery or something, and I'm just like, oh, and my finger, oh, 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 oh it hurts so bad, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. And I began a conversation with somebody who was there also. And this man, uh, he began to tell me that he had gotten caught in some, like, press in some machine and had pulled the whole left side of his body into it. And it just mangled his arm. He lost his thumb. And on top of that, they took his big toe and they put his big toe uh, for a thumb. And, uh, and, and they used to do that. It's, it's amazing. And so, you know, once you're not standing on it, it looks and it works like a thumb. But you have to learn to rewalk. And so he's excited because now he's got a thumb, but he's trying to learn how to use it and grab stuff again. And he's learning to walk and everything. And he's telling me this gnarly story. And then he asks me and he says, so, so what'd you do? <laughs> And I looked down at my little finger, <gasps> and I said, terminal illness. <laughs> but it put it in perspective for me. It put it in perspective for me. And it's interesting to see the perspective that Paul and Silas had. What was Paul and Silas' response to the whole situation? Notice with me in verse 25. But at midnight, at midnight, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. What is their response? Now note in this scripture right here, praying and singing is not a description of two different ex exercises. That of offering petitions and also singing hymns of praise. They're not, you know, oh Lord do this and then praising after it. There's no suggestion of petition in the word translated praying. The word covers the whole ground of worship asking for gifts, rendering adoration, continued supplication, offering thanksgiving. The word praying is immediately qualified by the word singing hymns. So we are not warranted in believing that these men were asking for anything at this moment. The worship of these men was that of adoration. These were exercises in spiritual joy. It was the expression of the gladness of their hearts. And so what was their response? First of all, they weren't asking for anything. They weren't asking to be delivered. They weren't asking for the pain to stop. But they took and they adored Jesus Christ. The situation they were in, they didn't say, Oh Lord, deliver us. Oh Lord, the injustice of it. Oh Lord, we've been wronged. Oh Lord, your gospel has been contained in this prison. People are out there who need you. All that was not even a part of their thought process as they lifted their voices and they sang praises to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in that dark place at midnight. 
And the, and the tense there is that they were continually singing. They had been singing since they got in there. And it's an amazing thing. Because their praise was that of adoration. It was that of saying, God, you are great. God, you are good. God, you are merciful. You are gracious. God, you are long-suffering. God, you are powerful. You're omnipotent. You're omniscient. You're in control. And you are good. That was the praise that was coming and rolling off their lips that night. So amazing. So awesome. It was the expression of the gladness of their hearts. These men didn't ask for anything, but they gave. In the darkness of the night, their feet fastened stocks, their backs bloody, they offered praises. They gave, and their giving was the outcome of their gladness. They gave to God. They gave to God. Oh, Lord, you're good. Oh, Lord, you're marvelous. Oh, Lord, you're awesome. Lord, you've come and you've lived inside of my heart. God, you, uh, by your precious uh, uh, blood, have set me free. God, you've transformed my life. God, heaven is my home. Oh, how we worship and adore you. Oh, you are king. Oh, you are great. Oh, we worship you. And it was the outcome of their gladness. It was the outcome of their gladness. And we look at this and we speak into that situation and we say, what in the world is there to be glad about? Look around. Don't you see? You're on the ground. Your back's bloody. Here you are. The gospel's not being preached. What is there to be glad about? There's no half-empty glass. The glass is broken. It's destroyed. There's no bird on your shoulder singing little sweet songs. It's dead. What is there to be glad about? And I think with all my heart, and I believe with all my heart, that their response to that question would be, what is there to be sad about? What is there to be sad about? Jesus lives in our hearts. And though they take our bodies, they can never take Him. Jesus rules and reigns from His throne in heaven. And though despots and rulers rise up and they blaspheme His name, they can never remove Him from His throne. And they would say, what is there to make us sad? We have eternity. Our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. You notice the prisoner's response to this situation in the end of verse 25. And the prisoners were listening to them. So here's these guys. And remember, it's midnight. Most of the prisoners typically would be asleep at this time. But something got their attention. Something grabbed hold of them. And they're listening. And you guys have to understand, the word there for listening means attentive listening or that listening that brings pleasure. That listening that brings pleasure. And so you've got this sense uh, that here they are, they're leaning at their chains, they're pulling at their chains, they're listening to these men who are singing praises to this God that they say they follow, this God they say that they worship. And the idea is that, that listening that brings pleasure is like hearing good music versus hearing bad music. And you know, uh, you know that distinction, because we all have different tastes and everything. My taste, I don't necessarily like polka. It's not my favorite kind of music. You know, but there is that music that you enjoy, right? That you just listen to that's beautiful. I mean, my favorite kind of music is what we do and what we'll be doing right after this study. Oh, how that just, man, wells up in the heart and bursts into flame. 
But here, that's the idea. And, and in fact, here's a picture of that listening that they were doing. Remember when you were a kid, and it was Christmas time, and your parents just got back from shopping, and they go into their bedroom, and they're telling each other what they got the kids and everything, and you hear your name through the door, and so you run, and you grab a cup from the cupboard, and you put it against the wall, and you strain to hear what's being said, and you, you know, as they're talking, you hear your name again, and so all your focus, all your attention is to pick apart the words that are being spoken and tie them back together in your mind, and wouldn't you know it, they're getting you exactly what you wanted, and you just go, yippee, and you throw the cup, and it goes into the ceiling fan or something like that. But that's the kind of listening that listening that brings pleasure, that listening that made them wonder, that attentive listening. And the thing is, is that this was an incredible and amazing witness to these prisoners. You have to understand that these prisoners weren't just the average guys in a lineup, but they were gnarly guys. The jailer would later almost commit suicide. Why? Because at that time, uh, the Roman law was that if one of your prisoners escapes, then you suffer the penalty for it. And so surely there were men in that prison waiting for the death penalty. And, uh, and, and here these guys from every kind of walk in life, from every kind of evil and background, and they're caught up in the moment of it all. They're caught up in the awe and the splendor of these men because surely as this was a tactic to get uh, evidence and to secure testimony, uh, prisoner after prisoner would come into that place after being beaten. And oh, how the moans would keep them up, how the groaning, how the complaining, how this and how that would keep them up through the night, how they would yell for them to be quiet, how they would stop their ears. But these guys were different. There was something different about them. It wasn't that they stopped their ears, but they were fascinated. It wasn't that they were tired, but something kept them up. It was that these men were so different than everybody else, that these men truly lived the transformed life that they proclaimed it to be. And what a powerful witness to see the reality of Jesus Christ in a Christian life and how the world watches and listens and is listening attentively. And I promise you that when they see that reality, it brings pleasure because it gives them a sense that, okay, maybe there is something to this God, this God of the Christians, this God of the universe, this God who said that He came and died in my place. People watch us. People who hear that we even have something to do with Christ. Oh, how they watch us. Oh, how they incline and strain at their chains to see, is this real or is it just another show? People watch our lives for the reality of what we proclaim. And I think that we can either be a thermometer or a thermostat in this world. In the environments that we're put in. What do I mean by that? A thermometer adjusts itself to the room or the environment that it's in. It accommodates itself to whatever environment it's put in. If it's cold, it's cold. If it's hot, it's hot. Wherever it goes, it's constantly adjusting itself to what's around it. But a thermostat is altogether different. Why? Because it sets the tone. It sets the standard and draws everything to itself. It goes into a situation that's cold and makes it hot. It goes into a situation and that's hot and makes it cold. And I think that is true of our lives. Sometimes we can be caught up and we can have our roots down in this world. But we're not of this world. We're not citizens of this country. 
We're not home, you guys. We are going home. We are pilgrims on a journey. And we are marching together toward that heavenly city. That is where we're going. And as we come into these different environments in these different situations, sometimes we can get caught up, whether it's circumstances or whether it's people, and we adjust to what's around us. So we're up and we're down. But we see in these guys' lives that the circumstances didn't adjust them. They adjusted the circumstances. They adjusted the circumstances and brought them in submission to the feet of Christ and let Him do what He would do. So we see the way to joy. The way to joy. In Romans 8.28 it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. In Romans 5, 3 to 5, as Paul would write, he says, and this is the same man chained there, he says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. And then this amazing verse that Paul wrote uh, in Romans 8, 35 to 39, he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who will do it? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will that be the thing that separates us? Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just Just as it is written, for your sakes we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The way to joy. Maybe you've heard it said in, in the course of your life, And it's a worldly mantra out there. It says, what can't be cured must be endured. That sounds good, but it's not Christian. It's not Christian. That perspective. But Christianity says, these things must be endured because they are part of the cure. They're part of the cure. What do I mean by that? Jesus said in John 16, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, that which uh, that you will weep and lament, So he's telling them, you're going to weep, you're going to lament, but the world is going to rejoice. It's going to get dark. It's going to look like they're winning. He says, you will grieve, but here's the key, but your grief will be turned into joy. The way to joy is through suffering. You see that he says that it's not exchanged for joy, but it's turned into joy. It's turned into joy. You guys, Christianity is never the sour pessimism that submits. It's never this sour pessimism that, oh, well, you know, this is all there is, and submits. Listen to this. It's the joyful optimism that cooperates with the process. It's that joyful optimism that says, I know that God will work all things together for His good. Because I love Him and because He's called me. That's that joyful optimism. It's not this sour kind of pessimism. Well, it's the only... It's that optimism, that sheer joy 
that says, I cooperate with the process. You guys have to understand, these, were not, these men were not callous. They were not indifferent. They were in an intense amount of pain. They weren't like, bring it on, I could have taken 40 more stripes. That wasn't their deal. But their focus wasn't on that. Their focus was on something greater. Their focus was on the greatness of their God. That He was in control. That He loved them. And so they loved Him back. My dad was walking along the beach when he was first saved in the early 70s. He's walking on the beach at night and the moon is full and beautiful. It's almost dropping into the ocean. Nobody else is on the beach. He's walking and he's talking to the Lord. The sand is cold on his feet and he sees something off in the distance. And it's glittering and gleaming and he's wondering, what in the world is this? So he walks over to it and he looks down and uh, it was a Coke bottle. You know, the old Coke bottles, the glass Coke bottles. And it's sitting in the sand there. And it's taking the moonlight and it's reflecting it everywhere. And my dad said the Lord spoke to him and said, Jack, I, I want you to be that Coke bottle. What? Is this about my scene or something? But as he thought about it over the next weeks, he began to understand it. Here was this Coke bottle, this transparent thing, this pure thing, sitting amidst this world of sand. How is glass made? With sand that's been heated to an incredible temperature. It's been heated in a furnace that the impurities might fall off, that that which is pure, that which is transparent might come through. And the Lord, and he understood what the Lord was speaking to him. He was saying, I'm going to refine you, not to hurt you, but to purify you. I'm going to empty you, not to leave you empty, but to fill you with my light. And I'm going to put you in the world to cast that light all around, all around. And so there's that cooperation with the process. In these men, we see the cooperation with the process. Lessons for our lives from this passage. First lesson I see is don't buy your way out of difficulty. Don't buy your way out of difficulty. Never before in the history of the world do we live in a time where we can buy ourselves out of uncomfortable circumstances. We can, can't we? The job's too hard, get another one. My boss is mean, go somewhere else. This marriage is difficult, leave and go find somebody else. I've got this, we'll pay for it on this. School is, is, is too rough, people don't like me there, go somewhere else. How many schools are there? And never before in the history of the world have we been able to buy ourselves out of difficult circumstances. And we have to be careful. Why do I bring this up? Because Paul and Silas the whole time had a get-out-of-jail-free card. You have to understand something. They were Roman citizens. And it was against Roman law to uh, beat them with rods and throw them into prison before their trial. There were certain rights that Roman citizens had. And all that they had to say is the guys grabbed the sticks off their back and raised them up to swing it down and say, we're Roman citizens, we're Roman citizens. And the whole thing would have stopped. 
The whole thing would have stopped as they'd been beaten and dragged down and as they were about to put them in stocks. All they had to say was, we're Roman citizens. As they were, uh, you know, laying there an hour after hour of agony, all they had to say is call the jailer, hey, we're Roman citizens. There's been a misunderstanding. At any point they could have done it, but they submitted to Christ because Christ was going to do something through the difficulty. He was going to do something through that that would work something far more great and far more uh, marvelous and far more lasting in impact. You see, as the magistrates did find out, as Paul said, as they said, okay, leave the city, he says, wait a minute, we're Roman citizens. The magistrates were embarrassed and they were fearful that they would be removed, that word of this would get back to Rome, they would lose their jobs and that there would be some kind of punishment for them. And so the glorious thing is, you see, the precedent that had been set with beating Paul and Silas was that, oh, we can treat the rest of their converts like this. We can treat the rest of the church like this. But when they found out, that the mag- and the magistrates found out, we've done something wrong, God set up a protection over that church where this group couldn't bug them anymore and they were able to be established and to grow without that persecution. Because Paul and Silas didn't buy their way out of their difficulty. And Paul would even later come back and visit this church without anything crazy happening. We have to be careful about getting out of difficulty because that very difficulty may be God-ordained so when you endure, you may shine like the stars. Maybe it is that, right? Maybe God has so ordained the circumstance that you're in tonight so that your coworkers who are watching, they're straining at their chains to listen, are watching, and maybe as you come through shining like the stars, they'll see the reality of your Christian faith. Maybe some illness has come into your life, and maybe, just maybe, that prodigal son or daughter, as they see you sing praises to God through it, might see the reality of the profession of your faith. Who knows, maybe the difficulty we try so hard to run from is that which God has ordained to do something marvelous, to do something amazing, to do something glorious. I think about the boys in the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all they had to do was bow down. Who would take note of it? No one would notice. We just got to bow down and worship the silly image for a little bit, but they said no. They didn't buy their way out of the situation. They went into the fire, not expecting to be delivered, but they were delivered. And in a moment in time, a nation saw the foolishness of this stupid image to Nebuchadnezzar. It became so lame compared to the glory of what God did that now this nation saw that the Hebrew God was the one true God. Next lesson I see, and perhaps the great lesson of this passage and that you should walk away with tonight, is that men who sing in prison are men who cannot be in prison. People who sing in prison are people who can't be put in prison. People who sing through their circumstances are those who can't be bound by their circumstances. They can't be bound by them as they worship and as they adore and as they praise the Father. Why? Because they were in the presence of God. In Psalm 116.11 it says, You will make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy and your right hand are pleasures forever. In your presence is that fullness of joy. They just wanted to be where Jesus was. They wanted more of Him. They couldn't get enough of Him. 
And people who sing in prison are those people who can't be put in prison because they're before the throne. Sure, their bodies are down here. Sure, their bodies are telling them this. Sure, their bodies are here. But where are they, spiritually speaking, they are before the throne room of God, joining in the choir of saints through the thousand of years, praising and worshiping the King of Kings. And the freedom that that brought to their soul. Perhaps it is about midnight in your life. Circumstances seem against you. You'd say with Jacob tonight, all things are against me. All things are against me. But notice that God gives songs in the night. In Job 35, 10 it says, But no one says, Where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? In Psalm 42, 8, The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. His song will be with me in the night. Church, no matter the circumstances, and I don't say that lightly, And Paul and Silas didn't take their circumstances lightly. I don't. But no matter the circumstances, praise Jesus, worship at His feet, adore Him who is altogether lovely. There's a woman named Madame Guyon, and she uh, was put in prison uh, for a while and uh, treated illy and harshly for her beliefs in the Lord. But she wrote this in prison. This song, she said, A little bird I am, shut from the fields of air, and in my cage I sit and sing to him who placed me there. Well pleased a prisoner to be, because my God it pleaseth thee. Not have I else to do, I sing the whole day long, and he, and he who most I love to please doth listen to my song. He caught me and bound my wandering wing, but still he bends to hear me sing. My cage confines me round, but though my wing is closely bound, my prison walls cannot control the flight, the freedom of the soul. Oh, it is good to soar these bolts and bars above to Him whose purpose I adore, whose providence I love. Mm. Think of John Bunyan who wrote that incredible book, The Pilgrim's Progress in Prison. That work that I think is second to the Bible. Think of Horatio Spafford, and some of you have heard this story. But here was a man, uh, an assistant to D.L. Moody. And uh, he was in Chicago, and he was well off. He had three daughters. He had a lot of real estate. And, uh, and what happened is the Chicago fire hit, and it wiped him out, and completely wiped him out. And then he had a son a short while later, and uh, his son would soon die after he was born. So these circumstances kind of seemed against them. D.L. Moody at that time was in Europe and, and doing a great work and sent message, come over, I can use your help. And they thought, yes, it would be good to get away. And so Horatio stayed back to take care of some business and to, uh, to settle things. And uh, he sent his wife and his three daughters on ahead. And tragedy of tragedies, the ship that they were on sank in the middle of the ocean. When he got a telegram from his wife, with two words on it, saved alone. Saved alone. And his daughters had drowned in that ocean. And so as he was journeying over to meet his wife in Europe, all these things in his heart, all these circumstances, so overwhelming it can be, and the captain called to him and said, this is the spot where the ship had gone down. And so as he went out over the railing, and as he looked at the icy waters below, he pinned this song 
When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, those trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And the Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Praise the Lord for that testimony. Oh, how that song has brought comfort to people for generations. Next thing I see, and we're almost done, is people who sing when their work is stopped are people whose work has never stopped. First you have the prisoners, and surely some of the prisoners got saved, but you have this jailer. This jailer who's awakened by an earthquake, and he runs in, and he hears this, you know, oh, the prison doors are open, oh no, what's going on? And he's about to take his own life. He thinks all is lost, and all is, all is just hopeless. Paul cries out from the darkness. He says, don't do that. We're all here. None are gone. And the man comes and he falls down at Paul's feet and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And he goes and he goes into the house. He preaches the word to his family. His whole family receive it. They're all baptized. And now here's this jailer who was cruel and put them in the stocks. And now the next scene is him washing the uh, apostle Paul's back cleansing those wounds, taking that sponge to Silas's back, cleansing uh, those wounds, making them clean. And so those who sing in prison, uh, as we look and you go, oh man, their work has stopped. No, the work has never stopped. And how this family must have become a pillar in that church, how this transformed life was a testimony to all those around. I think of Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India, she so loved her kids, she never came back to America, or she never came back to where she was from. But she loved her kids so much, she called them her darlings. And there was one day uh, where she was praying and she was just caught up, and she's like, Lord, if there's any way you could use me to a greater extent for my little darlings, then do so. And as she got done with her prayer, she walked into a house and the floor had just been dug up. It was dark and she didn't see it. And she fell into this pit. She broke her foot, she broke her leg, she twisted her spine. She'd spend the rest of her life, the next 20 years, on a bed. Oh, but that bed was not a confining bed because she wrote praise and hymn and song and book after book and song and hymn. And that bed became, uh, didn't hold her and bind her. Uh, she wasn't bound to the circumstances, but that was a launching pad into the throne room of God and how she's encouraged generation after generation with her testimony. Finally, they praised God because they knew Him and kept praising because in knowing Him they wanted more of Him. And there is the secret. Why did they praise God? It was because they knew Him. But in praising God and in knowing Him, they wanted more of Him. Guys, it is only through intimacy with Jesus Christ that we want more of Him. That he, as we come to Him, He expands the capacity to have more of Him. We don't take a pill and wake up one morning and here we are, these incredible saints who are doing this and doing this thing. 
but it is by devotion and communion with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It is sitting at His feet. It is on our knees and worship and adoration and prayer that we get to know Him. It is taking up His Word and every day chewing on it like we are so importantly meet all our meals and eat all our meals. It's taking up His Word and feasting on that to know Him. And you guys, as the psalmist cried out, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for Thee. The more you get of Jesus, the more you want of Jesus. The apostles could praise Jesus and keep praising because they knew Him and in knowing Him they wanted more of Him and praising Him they only wanted to praise Him more. It's like taking a balloon to your lips and here's this small kind of a thing but through that intimate of that intimacy of that lips touching that thing the capacity of that is expanded and so God as we come as we whisper in His ear and He whispers on our ear as He kisses our neck so He expands the capacity for Himself. Oh, how we want more, how we get thirsty. We hunger and we thirst after righteousness. We want more Jesus, we want more Jesus, we want more Jesus. And then praise is easy. Praise in the noon, praise at night, praise in the darkness. Praise is an easy thing because the more you get to know Him, the more you get that vision of Him, of who He is, that He is the incomparable Christ. Oh, the more you want Him and the easier it is to sing. Why do you think we will sing for eternity? Why do you think that? Do you think it's because we'll be programmed that way where, you know, oh, okay, we're in heaven now and we've got these glorified bodies and now these glorified bodies are programmed to worship for all of eternity? No, it's because we will see Him in the fullness of who He is and with everything in us, we cannot but help but praise and worship Him. It will be the constant expression of the soul climbing that ladder for more and more and more of Jesus for all of eternity. For all of eternity. For all of eternity. The earthquake in verse 26 I only mentioned just to point out that it's, it's not that important. It's cool, it's awesome what God did through it, but there's not always an earthquake. There's not always an earthquake. And Paul and Silas didn't sing because there would be an earthquake. Guys, remember that. They weren't there singing because they thought they'd be delivered. If we do this, we'll get delivered. That was not their part. That was not their thought. How do we know that? Eleven years later, Paul would be in another prison. And he'd be chained to Roman guards. And there was no earthquake and there was no deliverance in that prison. But he would take and he would write one of the most beautiful books in the New Testament. The, letter to the, or the book of Philippians. A letter to these people. And it's amazing to me what the theme of the book was. It's none other than the theme of joy. Paul never stopped singing. Because circumstances didn't dictate when he sang and when he didn't sing. He sang despite the circumstances. And so should we. The victory of praise in our lives. Often I see pianos and they're used for a lot of different things. I've seen pianos with picture frames on them and vases, flowers and arrangements. I've seen people stand on them to change light bulbs, seen them covered, uncovered. I've even opened one up and seen one loaded with books. But those things, none of those things are what a piano was made for. A piano was made for one thing and that was to be played. And we find ourselves sometimes caught up in a lot of different things that we were not made for. And we're distracted over here and we're distracted over here, but we were made for one thing and that is to praise and to worship our King. And there's satisfaction and fullness of joy when we're doing what we were created for. 
I close with this story. The church was having a kind of a going out of business kind of thing in an old church and they were having an auction down in their basement. There were a bunch of people gathered there and they are getting their hands on all kinds of things that had been used over the years in the church and things were going pretty well but at one point they brought up this violin and this violin looked pitiful. It had faded, it had been scratched, it had been dented. It was, a, it was in a sad state. The auctioneer even knew it. and He put on his base, best face and he held it up and he said, uh, how about $5 for this? Do I hear $5? And no one bid on it. He said, how about $2? And nobody bid yet. A dollar. And almost with indignation, there was somebody from the back row, an older gentleman, who scooted his chair back and the chair screeched against that old wooden floor and everybody turned around to see who was making the ruckus. This man eyeing none of them walked all the way slowly to the front row to the auctioneer. He grabbed that violin from the auctioneer. He put it upon his shoulder and he began to play the most beautiful music that audience has ever heard. And their jaws literally dropped at how beautiful that music was. They couldn't believe it. And the auctioneer now with a renewed boldness got up and he said, do I hear $5? And somebody said $20. Somebody said $50, $200, $2,000, And you guys, circumstances may bruise us, they may scratch us, they may wear us, until the world looks and says, there's no value in it. But as we yield by the power of the Holy Spirit, not with our own strength, but we yield in His strength into the Master's hands, He will take those circumstances and He will produce music so beautiful that the world around their jaws will drop. They'll strain at their chains to listen. And perhaps this world, this time, this day, this age might be turned upside down. Sing praises to the King. At every moment of every day, church, we need to be a people who prays, a people who worships, a people who adores. That is the victory of praise. I think as we sang already in that song, listen to this verse. You guys sang it tonight. All the powers of darkness tremble at what they just heard because all the powers of darkness can't drown out a single word and that is the capstone on this passage of Paul and Silas. Oh, how they tried to stop him. They tried to align, they tried to persecute, but they were drowned out by the singing of these saints. And so, let us tonight drown out the enemy and the circumstances that rise up against us by our joy and by our praise of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And let us not stop here at this altar, but let us make altars at home. Let us make altars in our cars and altars at work, altars of praise everywhere we go, that praise would be on our lips all the day long to be a people who praise the King Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we adore you. God, we desperately want to be a people who are marked by this. Lord, we want this victory to mark our lives. How we long, Lord, for more of you. God, I pray for those in this room who don't know you. Truly, they're like that jailer 
who thought he had the keys to unlock all the doors, but who himself was the true prisoner in this story. I pray for those who are prisoners, who hold their keys of freedom up as badges. God, set them free tonight. Bring them to your feet. Bring them to the cross. Wash them in your blood. Save them. Open their hearts to receive your word. Save people here tonight. God, stir up in your people the heart of praise. Thank you, Jesus. We worship and adore you. In Jesus' name, amen. Simply come